the title of today's message is Prepare. If you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 40. And you've probably noticed that this year we're doing Christmas season a little differently. We're celebrating the Advent, Advent wreath, focusing more, a little bit more on prayer and meditation during the service, and trying to focus more and more on the real reason for the season. And for years, around this time, around the time of my birthday on December 3rd, I look ahead to the Christmas season and think, you know, God, this year, I'm going to focus on the real reason for the season. I'm not going to get into the commercialism. I'm not going to get into the stress, the busyness, shopping, and all this kind of stuff. I want to focus on Jesus coming to earth. And right after, you know, I would pray something like that, life would kind of smack me in the face with that, that cold rag like it does so often. And if you work in emergency care, the Christmas season can get very, very busy. And there's a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of tragic situations that just kind of want to suck that joy right out of you. And on top of that, there's a, a natural increase in the demands of ministry during this time, and by the time Christmas Eve rolls around, you just end up wanting it to be over and done with. So I wanted to do something a little different this year for this church, and that's why we're doing the Advent wreath and doing things just a little bit differently. Because one of the wisest sayings that I have ever heard, and in so many words the Bible addresses it this way, it says, your focus determines your reality. Right? Focus determines your reality. What you focus on is what you become. This is a reason that God set so many seasons, so many feasts, so many sacrifices in the Old Testament to remind us continually to focus on Him, to remind us continually what is important in life. And when you read your Bibles and you get to the second part of Exodus and then Leviticus to Deuteronomy, it just feels like it bogs down and it gets so tedious to read all these laws and regulations and descriptions, and you start to wonder why Moses was so detailed in all of this. It's because our Father God knows the human heart. He knows how easy it is for the enemy of our souls to take our mind off God and to cloud our vision with the worries and pursuits of our existence here on earth. And in this section of the Bible that we're going to read this morning in the book of Isaiah, what has, happened to the, what has happened to the people the prophet is addressing is that for the last 26 chapters preceding the verse we're about to read, it's been all about God's wrath. It's been all about the coming judgment. It's all about God calling them out for their sin and telling them to repent and telling them to come back to him. But they ignored him. And this leads to their eventual exile in the land of Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. They were totally removed from their nation and taken all the way from Israel to Iraq. Now put yourself in their place for a moment. It's very conceivable that these survivors of the siege, these survivors of the war, are living in regret right now. They are sitting there in a foreign land listening to a speech they don't understand and a culture they don't get, just thinking, if only we had listened. If only we had heeded the word of the God that he sent us through the prophets, we'd be living in our own nation right now. We'd be living under our own roofs, serving our own kings. But instead, here we are. We're destitute, we're poor, we're living in the kindness of strangers, 
little better than slaves in a foreign land where we're considered a second-class citizen. Therefore, God hears that kind of a heart coming from his people, and he instructs Isaiah, Isaiah, you need to change the focus of your message now. The time for judgment and wrath is over. I found a, I found a, way, a great way to explain what is going on in their hearts by using um, something called the pre preacher's homiletical reference. I'm going to quote from that. The section that we are about to read relates to the restoration of the Jews from their captivity in Babylon. In essence, this is the gospel of the Old Testament. That is, this, that is what this scripture's value is to us. To quickly summarize it, the ideas contained in the first five verses of this chapter are that a glorious change awaits the exiles, consisting of a new and generous manifestation of Jehovah's presence for which his people are exhorted to prepare for. The prophet is commanded to speak words of comfort to those captives from Jerusalem, to assure them that their warfare, their time of slavery, is about to end, that their sins are pardoned, abundantly expiated by their sufferings, that their God is coming to deliver them from their oppressors, and that they must prepare the way for his coming, just as a herald rides before a conquering king. And this is the context of what we're going to read this morning in Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill be made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you just teach us this morning the necessity to prepare the way of the Lord, the necessity to prepare the way for you to live in our hearts each and every moment of each and every day until the day that we stand before you gazing upon the one who loves us now. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you just use this message to bring us closer to that goal. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, a couple of questions just to get us thinking about what we're going to be talking about this morning. Have you, or have you, or do you have a similar reaction to the holiday season as I have? Where you just kind of want it to be over. It just gets so exhausting that you want it to be over. Maybe you had some type of tragedy occur during this time of year and you don't look forward to it. Is it more of a burden for you, or is it as God intended, a kind of a spiritual refreshing? Or maybe you're like Israel. Maybe you've messed up big time. Maybe you've messed up big time a few times in your life. Maybe you feel like part of your life has been stolen from you because of that. Like somebody has exiled you from the life that you thought you were going to have. And now you're in the wilderness, you're uprooted, you're unsure of your future, and you feel like you have no foundation to stand on. But that's exactly what this scripture is, re is referring to. If that sounds anything like you, then this message is going to speak to those deep felt needs. Isaiah 
40, verse 3 through 5 centers around the idea that we are to prepare the way. But what and why do we need to prepare? What, what, what is this preparation? We want to prepare because Jesus is worthy of that. And he is coming. During the Christmas season, we are celebrating the birth of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is Jesus we're talking about here. I mean, isn't he worthy of us taking a few moments every day? You know, 5, 10, 15 minutes each day to prepare our hearts during the holiday season, to prepare to receive him anew? Amen. I mean, wouldn't we do this for an earthly leader? I mean, let's face it. If President Obama or President-elect Trump were coming into Whitehall in a couple weeks, wouldn't there be people coming to prepare for that? Wouldn't the Secret Service, about two or three weeks before he shows up, send an advance team? They'd be out there checking the streets. They'd be sealing the, the manhole covers, make sure there's no bombs in it, checking the sewers, drug-sniffing dogs, counter-snipers. They'd be sealing every window on Main Street if he was driving down that way. They'd close down Senex and Quick Trip that day because it's too much of an explosive hazard for him to, to drive past if a terrorist was going to use that for an improvised explosive device. You'd have new people in town walking around looking for suspicious-looking people doing little bump and frisks just to check people for weapons and anything like that. Anybody ever been a political thing? Yeah, the Secret Service is just walking around. They may look like a wino. And all of a sudden, you're walking along, and some guy bumps into you, and all of a sudden, you know, you feel their hands go like that. They're checking you for a weapon. They're acting like they just accidentally bumped into you, but they're really doing a bump and frisk. This is, these are the kind of things that that we would be expecting. I mean, most of the businesses in towns would be closed off. They'd even close the airspace within 25 miles of this place, except for a couple of drones that we wouldn't even see, and maybe an Air Force combat air patrol above us. Every road would be closed, even for emergency traffic. If there was a, a fire on the other end of town and that motorcade's coming through, fire department waits. If you were speaking at the high school, it would be swept, re-swept, and swept again for chemical or biological contaminants. If you was going to eat here, special food would be brought in and prepared under the supervision of the Secret Service. All this preparation so that the President of the United States could visit and be safe. Think of the hundreds of man hours that were, and, and woman hours, people hours that would go into that. But how much more so it, it should we, as followers of Jesus Christ, recognize his coming into our world? Doesn't he deserve the same consideration? Doesn't he deserve the same kind of attention to detail that we would give an earthly leader if he came into town? And that's why we have to make a decision to prepare the way for Jesus this Christmas season. Because Advent is all about preparation. You know, one of the things that they pound into your head in any leadership course you would ever take is this saying, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. You can't prepare to do anything unless you make a concentrated effort to map out what is required and, and, and make that plan and accomplish that plan so, what, so you can accomplish this mission that you were planning for. You know, in 2002, my sister graduated from high school. And we decided to drive, you know, from Kenosha, Wisconsin to Washington State and celebrated with her. 
You know, one of my personal dreams at that time had always been to take a cross-country trip out west. I had always wanted to see the western United States. So I was really looking forward to going. And we planned it out. We planned everything out. We found KOAs near every place we wanted to visit. The Mall of America, Rapid City from Mount Rushmore into Badlands. West Yellowstone for Yellowstone National Park. And then the last 14-hour drive taking the scenic route called Lolo Pass. I don't know if Conrad's familiar with it. Driving truck. Highway 12 up into Washington State from um, Idaho. Yeah, Idaho. Um, it's, it's good. It takes you through the mountains. It takes about 14 hours to get to our destination from there. We drove all 14 hours. So we had the reservation. I even had it set up so my paycheck would be mailed to my house. My best friend would pick up my pay paycheck with one of my deposit envelopes and fill it out and toss it in the bank for us just to make sure we had enough money. Um, we found a great deal on a rental car with unlimited mileage. And that, that was a great deal because there's a 5,000 mile round trip, so you could really rack up the mileage there. She made the deal, confirmed the deal months in advance, and then the day we went to pick up the car, the day before we left, we found out that things had changed. You see, the deal, as originally planned, was that we paid for the first week of the car, and then when we brought it back, we paid um, the second half. So we got to the rental place and we found out the person who had set up the deal with us was new and they did it wrong. And then he had quit since then. So now they wanted all the money up front because we didn't have a major credit card. We had cut them up to get out of debt and we did the Dave Ramsey thing and just to get out of debt, cut up your credit cards. And so we didn't have a major credit card. So they wanted all that money up front, which means we would have no money to go on the trip. And I was calculating it was going to be at least $400 just in fuel with the Ford Explorer that we had rented. So that almost stopped our trip right there. I mean, we barely had enough money to leave town, much less travel across the country. We still found a way to go. Tammy is a great negotiator. Um, generally, the way she negotiates, she gets out of traffic tickets like this, too. Have you ever seen her cry? Have you ever really seen Tammy start crying? It's pathetic. You ever seen a cartoon where the baby starts crying and tears like literally shoot out of their eyes? And they absolutely pathetic. That's, that's my wife when she cries. And she started to do that and, and they would do anything to try to make her stop at that point. So we, we arranged it so we were still able to go. And, and I agreed to speak at my, or my stepmother's church for an honorarium and my stepmother gave us a little bit of money when we got there so we could still come out. But it just cemented that fact, or, or that saying, that my grandfather had always taught me in the military reinforced, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And that's why Advent is all about preparation. It means we have to plan to be purposeful in our pursuit of Jesus during this season. Right now, in this last week before Christmas, I encourage you, right now, to just close your eyes and make a plan in your mind. Say, God, I'm going to covenant this with you. Maybe it's 15 minutes before you turn on the computer, or 15 minutes before you check your phone. That's going to be a stretch for most people, including me. 15 minutes before I even look at my phone, I'm going to sit down with my Bible, I'm going to read about your birth, and I'm going to take time and pray and thank you. And if you make that a habit, 
I can guarantee you that that 10 or 15 minutes that, that you give God every morning, before you do anything else, will change your life. Another thing that these verses speak about is removing the obstacles. Verse 3, the second half says, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And what does this mean to us? It means that God wants and deserves the very best for us. As most of you know, I work in Black River Falls. Now, the quickest, speediest route I've found is to go northeast on Highway 121 in Northfield and then jump on the interstate and take that down southeast and go um, down to Black River. You can also go south to Blair and then head northeast to Hickston and then go south to Black River Falls. So I looked at a map and I actually calculated it out. With either route, there is probably as far as going east and west and north and south and everything, a good 8 to 10 miles of backtracking there, when you think about it. Now, how much easier would it be if Governor Walker tomorrow declared that we're going to make a highway that goes straight from Whitehall down to Black River Falls? Make it a four-lane highway. Bogles 10 of those 1,000-foot rises that occur between here and Black River Falls. Fill in a few of the valleys. Make another interstate highway with no speed limit. That would just be so much easier on my life. That would cut probably 15 minutes off of my trip at least. That would be just so much easier for me. But this is the idea of what this verse is saying. God wants direct access. He doesn't want to climb over the hill and through the woods to come and get to your house. He wants direct access. He wants and deserves a straight path. He doesn't want to have to run an obstacle course every time he wants to spend time with you. And there is some meaning behind the various terrain features described here in verse 4 when he's talking about the valleys being raised up. Whenever the Bible talks about low places and valleys, it's generally referring to something that is earthly, something that is, is a temptation or a danger or, or even death. And one of the most famous references to a valley is in the Bible is talking about the valley of the shadow of death in Psalm 23. Raising up our value refers to, or excuse me, raising up our valleys refer to applying our faith to our lives. Too often, we allow our vision to be clouded by what we see around us. And if we forget what the real truth about our existence is, that we are spiritual beings living temporarily, very temporarily, in earthly bodies. And I know this existence that we find ourselves in is a curious one. Because we were created to exist forever now. We just have this temporary stopover within a physical and earthly vessel. But this earthly vessel is so all-encompassing that we forget that we're primarily a spiritual being. And every weapon that the enemy has against, or tries to use against us aims to keep our vision low. It means to keep our vision on this life. He wants it low. He wants it on the things of this earth. He wants to make sure that we never lift our eyes off of our lives here. That's why he attacks our minds to keep us in the earthly realm. He does everything he can to make sure that we never spend that time with God so that our vision can be raised and we tap in to his power. And that's why this verse talks about the valleys being raised up. 
God wants to lift up your eyes and see reality for what it really is. That you are a spirit being on a spiritual journey that is completed only upon your graduation from this life and into the next. Because that's all death is, is a graduation. One of the great, greatest examples of this truth is found in 2 Kings chapter 6. The background of it is Syria is at war with Israel. The Syrian king learns that the prophet Elijah is using his prophetic gift to give advice to the king of Israel about how to defeat Syria. So the king of Syria orders his army to surround the city that Elijah and his servant are inside. Elijah's servant sees this huge army surrounding them and knows that the siege is coming. He knows it's about to get really bad. He knows that he's about to, to suffer probably a horrible death. And he's just sitting there, he's hyperventilating, he's probably breathing into a paper bag or something, and trembling in fear about this situation. And in his defense, if, if, if a huge army starts surrounding Whitehall here, and they say, we're going to come in and kill every single one of you, we'd probably be freaking out a little bit too, wouldn't we? But the prophet didn't rebuke his servant. He didn't tell him to cowboy up or man up. But he prayed instead that God would allow his servant to see through his spiritual eyes just for a moment. And that's what happened. Elijah's servant was amazed at the army of heaven surrounding those who were surrounding them. Millions and millions and millions of mighty angels with heaven's cavalry ready to defend that city and Elijah. And maybe that's what you need this Christmas season. Father, I just pray, Lord, that you just open up our spiritual eyes so we can see as you see this Christmas season. So we can see reality for what it really is. Not this, this bill of goods that has been sold to us. Not this illusion that has been placed before our eyes to keep our vision low. But lift up our eyes to the hills from whence our help comes from. And another way that we can prepare the way for the Lord to come into our hearts this Christmas season is that every mountain be made low. And that's referring to the high places in the Bible. In the Old Testament, particularly in 1 and 2 Chronicles and 1 and 2 Kings, we see this idea of something called a high place. And the high places were areas where people would go to participate in worship activities that were either for other gods or attempting to worship the God of the Bible in a way that God had told them not to do it. You have to remember that worship in the Old Testament was very ritualized. It was very set. God had a very specific way in which he was to be worshipped. And there was no deviation from that. So people would go to the high places to participate in worship of other gods. Gods like Baal and Asherah, which included a whole lot of drinking and a whole lot of sexual sin, and occasionally even human sacrifice. Or they would go and set up their own altars to God saying, I worship God in my own way. I don't need church. I don't need some paid Levite preacher sucking the money out of my pocket. I can go worship God in my own terms. That sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? What happens then happens today. What a high place really is, high places have to do with an elevated opinion of your opinion. 
Let me say that again. High places have to do with an elevated opinion of your opinion. It's self-worship is what it is. And that's the worst form of idolatry. It's placing your thoughts, your opinions, and your feelings above God's finished truth that we find in the Bible. And high places will always keep us from experiencing God in his fullness. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ wasn't just about the forgiveness of sins. It was about restoration. Restoration to restore that concept of Emmanuel, God with us. To do that, he had to take care of this problem of sin. So he took upon himself the penalty so that he could dwell in our hearts once again. God is a king, amen? And just as a king of this earth will tolerate no rival to his lordship, how much more so should the creator of this universe deserve our undivided attention, undivided worship, and undivided honor? Another thing that can put an obstacle for Jesus coming into our hearts is rough ground. That's why the rough ground has to become level. And I see that as holding on to some past hurts. You know, when I first came to this church, I used an illustration of two rocks, jagged rocks, bumping into each other. And I had two rocks taken from the breakwater around Lake <coughs> Michigan before I moved up as pretty much chunks of concrete. They had sharp edges, and they used them to show the value of frequent church attendance, and not only church attendance, but being active in the church and, and used in the church and working in the church, because it's going to cause those rocks to bump off or bump against each other, and all those jagged edges would be smoothed out. We all come to Christ with rough edges. Some of them are bad habits. Some of them are bad mindsets. Some of them are deeply held hurts that have shackled us to our past. One of my favorite sayings is that life is a contact sport. You're going to get punched. You're going to get kicked. And you will occasionally get knocked around, knocked down, or knocked out in life. And maybe that's you today. Maybe something has happened in your life that was meant to destroy any destiny or future that God had for you. Life seemed to be going really well, then all of a sudden, you're flat on your back looking up at the sky and wondering, how did I get here? The truth is, you got smacked down by a sucker punch from the enemy of your souls. And if the enemy can keep you there, where he wants to keep you, on your back, he wins. If this is you this morning, I invite you to drink in some gospel truth from the Lord Jesus himself who said, Come to me. All, ye, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So I would encourage you this morning, give Jesus that burden. Give Jesus that failure. He's reaching down right now to you, wanting to offer you a hand up off of your back. He wants to bring healing to your soul. He wants to dust you off and get you back into that game. And if we make straight in the desert the highway for our God by raising up our valleys, by bringing low the high places, and letting Jesus heal that rough ground, 
then we have a promise in this scripture that says the rugged places will become a plain. That means that the dead places within our lives will come back to life. And this is a promise that if we allow God to bring healing into our lives and healing our vision and seeing reality for what it really is, if we stop the cycle of building these high places in our lives, if we allow healing in the rough grounds of our hearts, that all these rugged places will be smoothed over and that seed of God's truth can be planted into good ground. It's going to take root and it's going to start producing a harvest of righteousness and blessing in our lives. And not only in our lives, but the lives of our families, the lives of our church, even the life, our employment life. Every part of our life will become a blessing. And then with the promise in this verse that we see, that we will receive, that we will see the glory of the Lord. You see, all of us need a fresh encounter with God. The importance of this is shown in the Gospels that tell us about Jesus in the desert. Jesus is in the desert. He's fasting 40 days, 40 nights. Understandably, he might be a little hungry at this point. The devil comes and tells Jesus, just use your divine power to turn these stones into bread. Why are you, why are you starving yourself for, man? Jesus' answer is the key for us this morning. That man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen. Now that word there, that every word that comes from the mouth of God, the word for word there, is rhema. Usually it's logos. Logos is written word. Logos is like my sermon notes here. It is words that is written down on paper. Rhema is what I'm doing right now, speaking to you. So what Jesus is saying is that you're not going to live on what this world can give you right now. What you're going to live on is what I speak into your life every time you meet with me. If you walk in close fellowship with me, if you walk listening for my gentle whisper into your life, that is what's going to sustain you. I mean, if you think about it in the Bible, manna would not last more than 24 hours. Remember that God gave them manna in the desert when they were wandering between Egypt and Israel? He gave them measure. It wouldn't last more than 24 hours to show them that they needed a fresh, daily, fresh touch from God. Amen. Jesus said we need to feed on his flesh and drink of his blood. He wasn't talking about cannibalism. He wasn't even talking about communion. He was talking about that he was supposed to be the sustenance and everything that we have in our life. And all these examples in scriptures are meant to point us to this truth, that God is our source. And anything else in this life is a seductive poison that just constantly and slowly tries to kill us. We need a fresh encounter with God. A daily encounter, even a moment-by-moment -moment encounter with God. Because all of us face pretty significant problems on a daily basis. And that's why we need an infinite God to deal with them. And that's why the promise of the glory of the Lord is vital to us. Because we need the Holy Spirit's help to make a straight path for our God. So that his power is available to us and we can live a life that we can honestly sing victory in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's rise.